The time is now. What is the secret to success? Movement. People look at you strange saying you change, like you work that hard to stay the same. Like you're doing all this for a reason. Hard work. Yeah. Works. Welcome to the latest training talk. This is Donovan. I was very excited to have this conversation with Dr. Marco Boulder. He's a very renowned physician that specializes in sports rehabilitation and pain management. We discuss all different toxic topics in his field, along with different um, techniques that he's using that uh, requires less uh, things about surgery, but really um, enhancing the, the function of knees, your back, um, with using your own, your own, uh, natural sales PRP. And we even get to discuss some of the things that are coming down the pipeline in the future where he sees medicine going with rehabilitation and being less evasive or being, um, able to avoid surgeries to, to truly recover. So sit back and enjoy this conversation I have with Dr. Marco Boulder. Welcome, boys and girls. Uh, we had our latest trainers talk, and I have a very special guest. I have Dr. Boulder, uh, who has been in Napa since 1995. He is on the staff of the Queen of the Valley in St. Helena Hospitals. Um, he has been affiliated with the Departments of Neurological Surgery at UCSF, Physical Medicine and Re- Rehabilitation, uh, UC Davis. And he's on the board for the Neuromuscular and Electrodiagnostic Medicine and the American Institute of Orchestine and Medicine. His CV, I was like reading his CV, it's long. I'm here in his clinic here in Napa, and we're having this conversation. I'm so excited to sit down with you. Pleasure to have you here, Donovan. But the first thing I kind of wanted to start off is what inspired you to become a doctor, especially in the sports and pain management side of things? That's a great question. My father was a doctor, and my grandfather was a farmer, and I liked having a connection with my community and, and being able to do something, something tangible, something good. I also like training. I like working out. Yeah. When I was in um, junior high and early high school, I was on, uh, in track, track and field. And back then, they said that if you lifted weights, you're going to get muscle bound, and you wouldn't be able to run fast. But I didn't listen to them. I lifted weights, and I was really skinny, but I lifted weights, and it made me even faster. Stronger, so I went against the grain, and it, and it and I set a number of records in the 600 meters and the um, uh, hurdles, and and uh, we had a decathlon, a little mini decathlon. So I had I had a number of uh, uh, achievements there, and and I felt it was all because I took a very rational approach to training. Yeah, and so I've always been interested in training, and then when I went to college, I majored in um, uh, biology and anthropology. I was very interested in, in human performance and how we adapt to our environment. And then when I went to med school, I thought I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. But with orthopedic surgery, you're mostly interested in the bones. Yes. And the bones are not moving. And I really like the parts that are moving. Yeah. So it's like if you were in the automobile business, are you interested in the motor or are you more interested in the frame or the, you know, the body, you know, the structure of the body? So yeah, I, I like the motor. Yeah. And so I like the muscles and I like the nerves. And I also like 
bones and so forth. But what I was really interested in was performance. So I wasn't sure what field I was going to go into. Then I found this field of rehabilitation medicine, which uh, is really centered around muscle. We're also interested in nerves, but it's centered around muscle. But then there's also on the other end of the muscle is a tendon. And then from the tendon, it goes to the bone, to the joint, and then to movement. Yeah. So this is why I chose this particular field. Yeah. And I do research that expands all these fields. I am published in orthopedic surgery. I'm, I'm published in the journal Muscle and Nerve uh, in the American Journal of Sports Medicine. And then um, I got into the healing aspect, just like you. Uh, you have found, I'm sure, in your career, this is the central part of your career, how you, training can help people's injuries. Yes. And it's still a real mystery to us. Why does this happen? Why can somebody have back pain for 20 or 30 years and then they go train and it goes away? Yes. And that's the magic. And that's the same magic that I'm pursuing, just like you. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm pursuing it from um, the standpoint of uh, looking into the body using my ultrasound machine that I have right here. It's the Philips IA22. It's really the... 747 of uh, 747 being the the airplane yeah. of of ultrasound machines. It came out in 2003, and when it came out, it was like I remember when the 747 came out. It was like wow, yeah. can something be that big and that amazing? And this this allows me to look inside the body at a higher resolution for surface things than MRI. Wow. So an MRI can look down to one third of a millimeter. Well, this we can go down to one tenth or one twentieth of a millimeter. And so we can find little micro tears and things in the body. And the other thing that this gives us that the MRI doesn't is the ability to interact with the patient while we're examining that particular structure. So I can actually look at something on the screen and, and actually just push on it with a little probe and say, does this hurt or does that hurt? And so we really have to be in tune with our bodies and listen. And, and there's this kind of feeling in modern medicine that, that we're, we're not smart and the only thing that's smart are computers and they're going to tell us what's wrong with us. But really, um, a good physical exam and very careful exam using ultrasound can reveal what particular structure is sore, whether it's just the upper third of the teres minor tendon, the rotator cuff, or it's the uh, lower part of the infraspinatus tendon, that kind of thing. Yeah. And we can pinpoint with you know, millimeter accuracy where a problem might be coming from. And unless you can find that specific problem, you may not have a chance at healing it. So I always want to try all the approaches that you're doing yeah. because so many things can heal if the patient or client gets uh, the right sleep, the right exercise. And, and it's really uh, interesting to try to figure out what the right exercise is. And, and it's a lifelong pursuit. You know, why is it that chronic tendon injuries, counterintuitively, they respond to heavy loading? You know, that's eccentric training, heavy loading. Uh, you know, that was so counterintuitive when it first came out. And, so there's all these different aspects of training that we, we know can reverse a chronic degenerative condition and stimulate healing, stimulate protein synthesis in not just our muscles that we see on the outside, but on yeah. the inside of our bodies, there's stuff happening, not just on the outside. But sometimes those mechanisms, despite our best efforts, they, they don't quite complete the healing process. And that's where I'm focusing on my ultrasound try to find that little area and then what I'll do is I'll inject right into that little area with your own body's healing cells. And these cells, they work best, whether they're platelets or, they're, or bone marrow cells or fat cells, they work best where they can't get to naturally. Yeah. So one of our best places is, for instance, the, the disc, the intervertebral disc. 
for muscles and so on, muscles are full of blood. You know, if you ever have a deeper gash or something, it'll bleed like crazy. But a disc, if you were to cut on a disc, nothing would happen. There's no blood in there. Yes. So that is an area that's an avascular, means very limited blood supply. And for something like that, um, if we can deliver cells into that a little micro tear in there, we can affect the repair. So these are very basic, essential, ancient principles. I mean, the most ancient principles of surgery are, you know, you get a thorn in you, you get a gash, something is, you've got to remove it, you've got to try to pull it out. Yes. So removing an abscess or removing something that's stuck inside you is the first principle of surgery. The second principle of surgery is closing the gap, closing the hole. And that was done thousands of years ago with stitches. They learned how to stitch thousands of years ago. And if you close the wound, it's going to heal faster than if you leave it open. And the same thing on a microscopic level. If I take these platelets, which are like little nanosurgeons, they, yeah. that's their role. Like if you uh, cut yourself shaving in the morning or whatever, you'll have a little uh, bleeding, and then that bleeding will turn into scab. The scab will eventually fall off, and underneath it you'll see a, a little wound that gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Well, that healing cascade starts with the platelets, which are the first ones to form the clot. And they have little arms on them. And those arms actually have little muscles in them. They have actin and myosin, the same muscle proteins that are in our muscles. They're actually able to pull things together and hold them tight, close them, and then cells will migrate across and you'll heal a little micro tear. And that's how we can heal like 80% of chronic disc pain patients. Wow. Patients who have bona fide chronic disc pain. I'm not talking about spinal stenosis, which are pinched nerves, but I'm talking about just bona fide disc-related pain that usually hurts with sitting, bending, um, and th that kind of pain, I thought in my lifetime we'd never be, have a cure for it. But the only way we're going to cure it is by losing weight, by exercising, by sleeping, which we should do anyway. Yes. And and if but if it doesn't go away, then there could still be a tear, which no matter how hard you try, you might not be able to heal. And we then we can try to heal those little gaps. And so that's that's been a real focus of my research and my work for the last ten years. Yeah, so, you're you're you definitely. I mean, we were. We had a little um, conversation about it a couple of weeks ago, and you're a leader in that space. I think PRP and mm -hmm. yes. what um, what makes you decide if you're using the platelets versus the bone versus the fat? Like, how does that decision um, get made? Yeah, the the platelets are um, our go-to, our first choice. Yeah, um, and especially for like I said, the discs, avascular structures. That would be the meniscus in the knee. If there's a, a little tear in the meniscus, you want to catch it early. You want you don't want it to progress. You don't want it to, to degenerate and flatten out, and then you're going to have uh, increased loading of the tibia and the femur, and you're going to develop arthritis. But you want to catch that meniscus and preserve it. So um, for many meniscus tears, if we put the platelets in, you're going to be able to close that gap. So my first choice are platelets. Yeah. Um, now for arthritis, which means loss of cartilage, they are effective and they are able to recruit stem cells to the area. They're able to uh, increase um, uh, healing and so on and decrease the pain. And that's been shown in many randomized controlled trials. Now, there have been also trials that have been negative. But if you look carefully at those trials, the, the dose might have been too low or something like that. But it, if the trials are done right, those trials show that with PRP, you will have arthritis will feel better for many, many pe people. Um, but if it's really bone-on-bone -bone arthritis or more advanced arthritis, or, or maybe a young athlete like in their 40s or something like that, and they, yeah. they um, are too young to have a knee replacement, um, there might be a little bit of arthritis. 
we wanted, that's where we would use the cells, using the bone marrow or the fat, that's where we would use those. And those work differently. I was talking about the platelets working like little nanosurgeons, but these other cells, we thought that they would go in and, and just kind of replace the other cells, yes. but they're not actually replacing the cells, but they're helping those cells. So they, they will exchange their uh, mitochondria, which are the little energy factories yep. in the cells, they'll actually exchange and give it to those. Those poor cells that are the bone-on-bone, in the bone-on-bone areas, are depleted. They're, they're just been like workers have been working hard and trying to like maintain the cartilage, and they're just depleted of energy. And then these new cells come and say, hey, have some of my mitochondria. Yeah. Here, have some of this, have some of that. And all of a sudden, these cells that are there are rejuvenated. That's our best um, uh, uh, estimate of how this is working, is by exchange of mitochondria and, and other um, cellular components are exchanged with those cells. So that, that's, that's how I would choose. That's interesting. You kind of said it in your explanation that, um, you know, your mindset, it's very clear that your mindset is trying to find uh, less invasive ways of improving the health of the, the, the patient or the client. And where, where did that mindset like first, when, when did you start to think, hey, this is really a possibility of going this route of, because a lot of times most people think of, oh, I, you know, I tweak my knee or I tweak my ankle, you know, or I tweak my shoulder, I'm gonna need to do surgery. You know, what kind of got your mindset to be, you know, maybe there's another way, maybe there's a way that doesn't require you to, to go under the, under the, the knife. knife. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That, that also goes back to, to high school. I um, remember that when I would I would feel sick or feel not so great, I would just go out and exercise and I'd feel better. So that was one place. Yeah. And another one, I did have an injury running track in ninth grade. And I tore my posterior cruciate ligament. Everybody's wow. heard of the anterior cruciate ligament. The posterior cruciate ligament is one of the two key ligaments in the knee. And um, I saw how successfully that could be rehabilitated, even though to this day I have eight millimeters of laxity. So my tibia will move back eight, eight nine millimeters relative oh, wow. to my fever, femur. And um, by maintaining my quad, keeping it strong, I was able to have no issues. And yeah. still I go skiing, I do everything. I, I, and so... Um, I realized that the right type of exercise could maintain, uh, make up for some laxity here and there. It can stabilize joints and having the right kind of strength. So that that's um, that was pretty much when I realized. It. And the other uh, time that I realized it was when I was in my surgery rotations uh, as an intern. I, I did a year of surgery, and I saw that we spent 99% of our energy in the operating room, yeah. and then when we went to the clinic in the afternoon, you start at 7.30 in the morning and then you operate till one or two. And then you, then you, you know, all the intense work is done. Then you go and relax in the clinic and you see your patients. And at two o'clock in the afternoon, I saw that my chief residents, the guys who were my superiors, they really weren't that um, concentrated on trying to figure out non-surgical ways of healing. They, they were just kind of give a, a very, simple or uh, straightforward answer that was not thought through very much. Mm -hmm. uh, so I thought, well, there's a whole space here that somebody could work on, to, somebody who understands medical problems, surgical problems, that could just develop these things. So that's I, that's was my curiosity was piqued that way. And I thought, well, I could make a career out of this. So that's that's kind of what, what got, me, got, my, got me started on that. That's interesting. So you, um, I know recently you, you're working on a, a research um, 
when it comes to the ACL. Is that correct? Absolutely, yes. And uh, I would love to hear more about what you've, you're seeing currently in that research and absolutely. Um, absolutely. What, what, what you're finding. Tell me more about that research that you guys are doing. Absolutely. So um, if you wouldn't mind, maybe you can hand that model over there. Yeah, that's There's right. a new model right there, and I can demonstrate to everyone. So, yeah, of course, the anterior cruciate ligament. There we go. Um, the anterior cruciate ligament is, is right here in the middle of the knee. You can see it, see it right here. There's the anterior cruciate ligament, and then, then we go in the back, and there's a posterior cruciate ligament. So these two ligaments, they're the primary internal stabilizers of the knee. And as you all have probably heard, when you hear of an athlete blowing out his knee, that usually involves an anterior cruciate ligament injury. And that ligament, once, once it's uh, torn, will destabilize, will result in the, the knee being very unstable. And we always thought that the ACL had a very limited capability to, of healing itself. And that maybe, you know, one out of 100 patients might get lucky and it might just scar down, usually in the proximal part, you know, the upper part yeah. might scar down and so forth. Um, and, um, but recently, studies done in Scandinavia, paper by Kanun uh, uh, and, and so forth, they found that up to 25% of them will heal. Oh, wow. That's a much a higher number. And now, if you ask an orthopedic surgeon in Scandinavia in, in a panel, in, in, in an orthopedic surgery meeting in Scandinavia, you ask them, well, what, what type of operation would you want for your acute ACL injury? So, oh, no, I would, I would just rehab it. Yeah, I would rehab it and see if it if it's if I'm one of the 25 percent that heals. Yeah, because the advantage with healing your own is because, first of all, there's a little nerve that sits on top of the ACL, and that nerve uh, sends signal to your brain to tell you where your knee is in space. So it's an extra sensor, yeah. proprioceptive sensor. And the other thing is is that um, um, the tension of that ACL is um, perfect. You know when we have it yeah when we've grown with it you, when it's yeah. made for you when we've grown with it and and it's uh not just like a round hot dog shaped structure it's it's kind of like a little bit of a fan it, it uh it's like a little, a little triangular and so on gotcha and there's two bundles an anterior and a posterior bundle an anterior medial and a posterior lateral bundle and so the um doing the graft you you may you can make it strong you can take a, a piece of your patella patellar tendon yeah and transplant it and make it strong put screws in there whatever and so sure if, if i try to tackle you it will be strong yes but would it be precise yeah and would it would it allow your knee to move really precisely in space and allow you to be able to pivot at, at a moment's notice and would is your knee going to be as precise and as high performing as before it might be strong so that's that's the question and so what we've done uh, we were surprised that um we were able to get nine out of ten of these to heal Wow. There, and that were called complete ACL tears. Yeah. Um, and there are different levels of completeness. Completeness is you can be like 99% complete, which means there's 1% fibers left. Yeah. And I'm demonstrating here, like just for instance, like this. This could be there's only one fiber left, but that as long as that one fiber is there, it allows these guys to kind of come closer together. Gotcha. And if you think of the Golden Gate Bridge, like how did it, they get a, a span across that huge? two-mile two space, you know. And, yeah, exactly. You yeah. first have to get a wire across. You just get well, one wire across, and then you get another wire across, and then you get, you know, cables, you know. Yeah. And so the same thing, if you have that one cable left, 
then, the, then these are aligned. And even if you don't have that with single cable F, as long as um, the, the fibers are with, within uh, one centimeter of each other, the cells can cross the gap. Gotcha. Because the ACL is, has its own little sheath that it sits in. It's like, it's, it's like a hot dog, and it's got a casing. It has its own casing. And, and that casing is going to allow injected cells that we inject to stay right in that gap and start crossing the gap. So we've been able to get 9 out of 10 of these to heal that were really considered to be complete, complete, complete. And one of the bundles, at least one of the bundles would heal. But in our most recent case, uh, a 17-year-old, we got both bundles to heal. And that's not even the goal of surgery. With surgery now, it's single bundle repair is, is the gold standard. Gotcha. A double bundle repair was tried, but it was felt to be too complicated. And the outcomes weren't any different, just doing both. Because you're still, you're not tensioning every single fiber in that of that collagen. You're not tensioning the optimum. I mean, if you wanted to tension an optimum, you like tuning a guitar. You know, you have to t each string would have to be tuned and perfectly tightened. But you don't. You just put in one big screw, one big on either end, and you just have a gross uh, you know, reconstruction of that. But that's why I think it's really nice to try to get it to grow back where you're going to have natural uh, retensioning of each of the fibers. What is the timeline difference between, you know, somebody with the surgical route versus the interventional um, route? The interventional route. What, is, the, what are you guys seeing? So the interventional route, um, so as far as return to um, single leg squat is one of the criteria you try to aim for Yeah. ACL. Uh, we, we were able to get people to do single leg squat. If they're athletic, they're not overweight. Yeah. Six weeks. Yeah, wow. Six weeks. So. So actually, one of my patients, he's um, in South Lake Tahoe. Uh, he won't mind me using his name. He's, his name is Oliver Starr, and he raises wolves and trains wolves for movies. And stuff. Okay, wow. So he lives up in the mountains in a log cabin with several wolves. And, and so he, he uh, injured his leg um, in February uh, several years ago, and someone else injured their leg the same day. And they were competing against you know, who's faster, and he definitely beat out the guy who had the surgery. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, at six weeks, you're able to get that single leg squat. At three to six months, I still want them to be careful and conservative because yeah. the full healing doesn't doesn't happen until a year. And when we get an MRI at six months, you notice that there's 50% improvement of density. It's not as dense as, as before, but at one year, then it reaches its full density. So we're really trying to be careful with it. But you can um, do everything. Um, uh, so, certainly, you also don't sacrifice any other part of your body like which yeah. if you're getting a graft a patellar tendon graft and so on you're going to sacrifice that and some people do get pain in the central one-third of their patellar tendon from the graft site yeah and, and that can be a, an issue for some people i mean I, I also wonder too with doing the method that method of being less invasive it also because i've worked with uh, uh some people who've uh, who are returning from they've had a acl surgery there is a point of where they're just not even that mobile of a person. They're on crutches. They're yeah. so their ability to to be active with their rest of their body is is very restrictive. I, I allow weight bearing from day one. Yeah. So we allow weight bearing. Wow. We just want to avoid terminal extension. Um, and uh, but what's interesting in many of these patients, um, when they come in, you know, they might have one or two strands left, and your ACL when you go to terminal extension, when you really go all the way straight yeah. straighten out your leg. The ACL is actually tensions up at that point. Yeah. And if they have one or two strands left, they feel that. It starts to hurt yeah. when they start to get to that pull. So you have, there's a natural feedback telling their brain, like, don't go there. Uh, so as long as it, and I'm really, it's really important that that natural feedback remain. I don't want them taking 
anti-inflammatories or Tylenol or anything. I want them to know exactly wh where when you feel that tension. That means you don't you don't go past that point. So you have that natural uh, limitation based on the pain and, and so forth. So, so I, I really I let them I let them go out and do everything. If they want to get into some more dynamic sports, like go back to skiing at six months or something, I want them to wear a brace, like mm, a Donjoy yeah. um, yeah. carbon fiber brace or something. So, um, yeah, we, we let them have that. Now, we've done knee function scores at one year, and we're comparing our outcomes to uh, UC Davis sports medicine surgical outcomes. We're doing a study through UC Davis, um, uh, and we um, found that our scores were uh, at UC Davis surgery was 88, 89, 90, 91, you know? And we were 90, 91, 92, 93. So both were really good. They're almost yeah. 100%. But yeah. but the scores were eight, you know very comparable. Our scores were one or two points higher, uh, which is considered to be statistically insignificant difference. But so comparable. But I um, um, the real question is going to be: What about five years down the line? Who's going to have less arthritis? Yeah. Is it going to be the more precise knee, which I like to say it's more precise? We don't have proof that it's more precise. Um, but I think we will be able to prove it. There are new three-dimensional x-ray imaging equipment. Um, um, the, there is new equipment being developed by the University of Pittsburgh. And uh, the Stedman Hawkins Clinic in Vail, Colorado has it. Mm. They had it. They got it from, from Pittsburgh because oh, okay. it was the same people developing it. And using that, um, that equipment, we'll be able to determine who has a more precise knee and, and down the line who's going to have less arthritis. You know, because... 50% of ACL reconstructed knees go on to have some arthritis down the line, which yeah. is unfortunate. So that's our goal is to is to have a more precise, more higher performing knee, uh, but also um, less arthritis, higher, lower rate of arthritis down the line. You just opened up a, another door there, arthritis. One of the things, you know, I've, and this might be a little more of a selfish question. So I have my clientele, um, for the most part, is, I mean, I have... Uh, some people are in their 30s. I do work with teenagers occasionally for like getting them ready for sporting seasons, um, uh, college athletes also. But I would say 80% of the people I'm seeing are probably 45, 50, and up. My oldest client is 91. Uh -huh. So um, usually at some point, I'm noticing that you know they're they're running into, uh, I would say out of 10 or 15% of those clients, they're running into probably some arthritis situations, either in their hands, like a thumb, yeah. you know. Uh, one of our mutual friends who's a chef, I think has a little bit, some in his, his thumb um, from uh, being, you know, working in, in the restaurant side of things. And then also um, skier where he's starting to feel some discomfort in his knee, but, you know, I think he's been so blessed because of his work ethic and, and stuff like that, it's, it's, it's not a big issue. But I just wonder, what do you see What when somebody coming is coming in and they feel like they're having some arthritis pain? How do you normally address that? Well, I, I'm, I, I try to see if, if it's a hip or if it's a knee. I want to see if there's a labrum tear or a meniscus tear because I want to fix those. So um, the meniscus provides a nice support, a cushion, uh, it, it cradles. It cradles the, the femur yeah. on the tibia. So if you didn't have a meniscus, then you have high point pressure because you have this curved surface on a, on a flat surface, and the curved surface is going to have point pressure yeah. on the flat surface. But the meniscus cradles that, so it redistributes the forces. So I want to try to see if I can get that meniscus to heal. And if they have something called a root tear, that should be reconstructed surgically, arthroscopically. 
if we can't get the platelets to do that, yeah. that much of an approximation. But with um, small tears, they can heal, and we have evidence for that. And with the hips, the hip labrum is such a key to the hip joint. So the hip joint has to maintain nice lubrication. Yeah. And the lubrication um, is, um, is, is kept in place through, but with the hip labrum. Labrum meaning lips. So like just our lips keep our food in our mouth. The labrum keeps the fluid inside the joint. If the labrum is torn, it'll leak out. Oh, yeah. So we try to get that labrum to heal. And we've had patients with 5, 10 years of pain and maybe maybe minor or very early arthritis or something. But when we get that labrum to seal with, with our platelet injection, then they feel much better. And it ha happened to me. I had pain for 10 years. My fellow injected it because I finally did something more extreme and it really was hurting more. And then all the pain went away. The pain that was recent and the pain from 10 years ago before. Oh, wow. And I can go and, you know, go in a big gear up a hill for like an hour and it doesn't hurt. Oh, wow. So... Um, you know, so that's my, my, that's what I would say. Yeah. But then there are others others who have more uh, arthritis, like actual loss of cartilage. In that case, I would say we can try the cellular treatments and so on. And that we still have a long way to go with those cellular treatments. Um, the latest is that we actually in, are not focused so much on the surface of the, of the area that's um, getting uh, worn out, mm -hmm. but the underlying bone. So it's really, everybody's talking about subchondral bone now. That the cartilage and the subchondral, meaning sub below the cartilage, yeah. subchondral bone is is really key to try to restore its strength. Like if we think about a, the road outside of our office here, um, it's getting worn out. There's asphalt thinning. Y yes, you can focus on the surface, but you also have to think about what's underneath that that layer of gravel, whatever. How solid is that? Is it rolling a little bit? Is is oh, it, yeah. is is our heavy trucks, you know, causing it to deform a little bit and so on? So now, with our injections of the bone marrow cells, when we take bone marrow from the iliac crest, the back, yeah. which is a non-moving part, which never wears out, we take some, borrow some cells from there and inject them. We'll actually inject them not just in the joint space, but in the subchondral bone in the bone there to kind of make that bone super strong again. And if that bone doesn't deform, then those other cells have a chance to kind of, you know, grow back a little bit. And or even if they don't grow back, the cartilage grow back. As long as the bone is strong, yeah, and you get bone on bone, then it doesn't hurt. But if the bone is not strong and it's depleted, then you get bone on bone, then it's like ouch, ouch, yeah. ouch. But bone on bone can be tolerated just fine if it's solid. If it's solid as a rock. Hmm. That 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 makes a lot of sense because I have a, a client who who's uh, 77, um, and he has great uh, bone density and bone strength, and his knee has been. Um, when he's done, he had an examination, um, and his he's on bone on bone, but he doesn't have any discomfort because his quads are really strong, his legs are really strong, and his bone is probably like like yeah. a diamond, you exactly. know, like a carbon fiber or diamond, you know. Exactly. Hardest, so, yeah. so that that kind of that <clears throat> that makes sense on on that part. Um, I'm really enjoying this. I, I don't want to take too much of your time, but one of the questions I did want to think about is. You kind of just mentioned it there about the future. Like, what are you seeing in terms of medicine or your field that you're getting excited about that is probably in the next five years to where you think things will go? Maybe if you really went out 15, 20 years, where do you think things will go with uh, the, you know, the power of re rehabilitation and also medicine? Yeah, that's it's a great, great question. I, th I think... 
Well, one thing that where we're going is is um, earlier recognition of the problem, and and it starts with not taking anti-inflammatories for an injury. Yeah. Um, and there was a, a great study that came out in science and translational medicine last year out of Montreal, where the researchers were, were surprised. They're pain researchers. Yeah. And so the pain researchers are always focused at pains in the brain and, and that if you have pain for a long time, it's going to develop in your brain and you're going to be stuck with it even if the, you heal the injury. Wow. And there's some truth to that, but I keep finding that that's really not that true yeah. as much as they think it is. And they, they um, what, tested rats and they injured their tails. So the tail is an extension of the spine. Yep. And there's those vertebrae in the, in the tail. So they injured their tail and they gave one group of rats um, anti-inflammatories, you know, Advil, non-steroidals, and so on. Yeah. And the other group, no, no, none. And so they were expecting that the group that got the anti-inflammatories would have less chronic pain, but it was the other way around. Oh, the group that uh, did not take the anti-inflammatories had less chronic pain. And then they thought, well, this is interesting. Then they went into the UK Biobank, that's United Kingdom um, Health System, and they looked at 9 million patient records, computers-wise, and they were able to find that yeah, the patients who took anti-inflammatories for their acute back pain were more likely to have chronic pain. So, so one thing that we're going to find is that that we're going to find that um, our younger patients are going to get the right treatment early, and they're not going to be taking anti-inflammatories for their pain and then continue to play on that injured knee. Yeah. And um, um, so that's that's one one area where, where we're going to um, be ahead of the curve in those people. And then and then we're going to um, uh, again, we're working on the subchondral bone. That's where we're going to yeah. be injecting underneath there to make that stronger. Well, once we can improve that, then we can uh, we might be able to get cartilage to resurface better on the inside. And um, um, that's that's quite elusive. But there have been some studies. Um, one out of Brazil, Americans and Brazilians together, they just injected something very simple, which is dextrose, which is a sugar. Yeah. And the dextrose and glucose are the same thing. Yeah. 5% um, or 15% dextrose solution was injected into the joints. It's called prolotherapy. And, and um, we used to kind of look down on prolotherapy. It was kind of the domain of doctors that hadn't done residencies and specialized, and they were just kind of kicked yeah. out of their program. And what do they do? They, they, they can't practice in the hospital, so they shot, set up shop at a little strip mall, and they do yeah, prolotherapy. Like yes, yeah. exactly. But that turns out this stuff really is working uh, for some things yeah and uh, for carpal tunnel and things like that it seems to be helping it but the, the little bit of sugar was shown to actually resurface the joint uh, the cartilage a little bit and that was done based on uh, looking at scopes they put cameras in and looked at scopes and and it was a smaller uh, barrier the barrier became smaller mm -hmm. so that was interesting um, that study hasn't been replicated because you have to scope people that's pretty invasive to just yeah. find out. Hey, is it is it is it actually getting smaller? And you know, if people are feeling good, they're playing soccer again. Like, do you want to get your knee scoped again? No. And so, but but these people were motivated enough uh, to to get scoped again. They they did see that the cartilage had regrown a little bit. So I'm thinking I'm optimistic that if we were if they were able to demonstrate with dextrose, which is a very basic substance. Yeah. Uh, and, and why would that work? Well, cells seem to respond well to a happy environment. And when, when there's dextrose around, that means there are no bacteria around because uh -huh. bacteria will eat up dextrose. Uh, so bacteria will lower dextrose. Like one of the ways where we diagnose meningitis is we get spinal fluid, we do a spinal tap. And when, if, the, if the sugar is low, 
Ah, then that means there must be bacteria eating it up. And, and cells probably sense when there's nice sugar around, well, sugar, that means there can't be bacteria, which means they can kind of relax and they don't have to be kind of in this protective mode. Mm. Uh, so the bottom line with that study was that they were able to demonstrate that there was an improvement of the bare area. The bare area was smaller, with just dextrose. So if that could be shown, then hopefully with some of these cellular treatments that we're developing, and we may get the right formula, may be able to get just the right formula to get gets more more things to regrow. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and the other thing is is that definitely the loading pattern is really important. Uh, how they're loading, what they're doing for training, what, what their quad balance is, what their gastroc soleus balance is, medial gastroc, lateral gastroc, all those things they they're all going to affect it to some degree. And just the right amount of loading is, is really important because loading after these procedures is really important to get the cells to um, increase their collagen production because if they're loaded a little bit, yeah. they increase their collagen production. And, and the, they found at the University of Pittsburgh that these vertical loads are better than the shear loads, sideways loads, the yeah. vertical loads are better. And then the question is, is the pulse better than continuous? And yeah, pulse is a little better than continuous. So we're going to find more about loading and so on. Um, and they're doing this work at, at Pittsburgh in, in the lab, but there's also just feedback from from your patients, your yeah. clients are gonna you're exploring this all the time too, and you're and then you might find out well this seems to work and that doesn't work, and that's where we're all gonna be communicating and, and we get translation of knowledge from one field to the other, and you go from the whole person level to the cell level and vice versa. Yeah. So so we are noticing that that. You know, we think of ourselves as rest and digest and fight or flight mode, like you can relax and you can grow or you can be all stressed. But cells are in that same paradigm. They, they live in that same paradigm, rest and digest versus. And so, so there's a lot, lot we're learning. And, and we hope, well, I'm hoping that, yeah, in a few years, we'll be able to program the cells to try to grow and, uh, and, and, and sideways and so on. But it's a gradual process. It's not like it's going to happen like all of a sudden. It's very gradual. It's like our cell phones, I mean, there was a big, you know, when cell phones came out, it was like all of a sudden the iPhone. But every year they get a little better now, but it's not like next year we're going to have like exactly. something amazing. It's just slightly better than last year. And we did, we still had Uber five years ago and yeah. we have Uber next year. And it's not that different, but it just keeps evolving a little bit. Yeah, totally. That makes a lot of sense. Um, do you, uh, oh, before we wrap up, do you have any questions for me or anything like that? that Tell me about some of your um, um some magic, magic transformations. Because I, yeah. I, I will learn from your uh, examples and translate that to what what, I, what I'm doing. Yeah. So I would say um, the 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 transformations I'm seeing, and some of this is um, with uh, different clients and uh, things like that. Is one thing I'm um, obviously noticing is. This, this helps as I've gotten older too, of what is the prep for the body. Like the, even as, as my clients, I've been working with certain clients for over 12, 15 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's cool is you get this longitudinal kind of data of seeing their, where they were before when they first started and, and where they're at. And the strength level and maintaining their their fitness level of where we even started, like even when they're younger, it's more always about consistency mm -hmm. and it's not as much about intensity 
mm-hmm. um, especially when they they're getting over forty five. Mm-hmm. So I've seen it where thirty year olds, twenty year olds, they can get away with doing two to three pretty strong workouts and they're good mm-hmm. and things like that. And what I'm noticing is that what's more important for uh, my clients that are over 45, 50 is as they get older is to focus on precise movements, diversity of movement, but doing a little bit of something every day. And even if the intensity level is, so say it's, you know, when you're 20, 30, you're doing 80, 90%, maybe you know, you're going really hard and you're going to be really sore that for a day or two. What's more important for as you're in that 50 plus is to go mainly 50 to 70 percent. Have some diversity where maybe once a week you really push it um, and then maybe you you build in the programming to do more mobility, more um, restorative stuff the day after. Um, And those those things, what, what ends up happening, I have. I have six-year-olds who are, who are pressing. They can they can press 80, 90 pounds with dumbbells. They can do box jumps uh, mm-hmm. that are three feet high. Um, it's uh, what also happens. It almost becomes a level of practice. Mm-hmm. Like they become better at the skill of movement mm-hmm. by doing that consistent mm-hmm. movement pattern. And and so because of that, they 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 put themselves in scenarios where they can still ski. They can play tennis. Mm-hmm. They can do things with their grandkids or their. Um, and uh, I think one of the things that when I was at Salaj, uh, one of the things that happened was I've been, our company has been very good at working with members where as they get stronger, our program starts to get stronger. Mm-hmm. And uh, something that was interesting, we did a kind of informal study of seeing that the uh, members that were 50 to 70 were stronger than the people who were 20 to 30. Wow. And, and so cool. it, was, it was interesting. Some of it is because the 20 to 30, they're working. They can only come to the gym or, mm-hmm. you know, they can only come to classes and do things for themselves maybe two, two and a half hours a week. The 57-year-old, they're slightly semi-retired or really yeah. can control their schedule. They're doing anywhere from five to 10 hours of, mm-hmm. and their stamina is, it's just, it just crushes. Mm-hmm. Um, and just seeing that as that's possible, I think is really remarkable because when working in hotels, you get guests that are coming in and they see these people in the class and I'm like, how old are you <laughs> when they see them moving? So, um, I would say the consistency over anything as you get older is more important. If you just do a little bit every day, you'd be surprised how strong you still mm-hmm. get in the improvement in your movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes, makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, 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 uh, it's, it's uh, really cool to see that. I think um, other, other like big, big thing is it's playing with uh, nervous like plyometrics. How about and, uh, have you been able to get rid of back pain in, in some patients? and? Yes, you know, uh, usually what I've, I've found that when, um, uh, usually like a simple test I'll do for clients that they uh, say, or somebody comes in and say, you know, they've been having back pain. Well, first I'll ask, 
Is it localized um, in a spot or does it feel like, is it on the right side, left side? You know, where where is mm-hmm. the discomfort coming from? And if somebody who semi works out regularly, then I'm like most likely a soft tissue, especially if it's a general area. Mm-hmm. Um, and so usually uh, I kind of have a sequence and I don't know if this happens to you where you've been doing something for so long that sometimes you you can just see the patient and you can kind of, I can tell it's like, oh, your your left glute, you know, or your left glute medius is yeah. is is tight. You know, we just need to put a lacrosse ball there and kind of rub that spot. It will create a little bit of flow in the mm-hmm. in the 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 attachment point. Mm-hmm. And just that will start to relieve some of the oh, pressure. Yes. Um, or I think another one is the psoas muscle. Mm-hmm. Because of the attachment points into the bottom of the lumbar and, mm-hmm. the, and the spine there, sometimes getting that released, if somebody, uh, it often happens when somebody's been traveling. Mm-hmm. They come back from a trip, they drive from San Francisco airport, they've been in the car, the next day they come in and they try to do their gym workout. And they're like, something's not right. And it's often because they've been sitting for a long yeah. time and just by releasing that releasing their 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 glutes mm-hmm. they feel 90 percent better wow, so yeah. so like often that will that will get 90 percent of it and then there is some other things of working on learning how to use your glutes or learning how to use your mm-hmm. hamstrings correctly when you you pick things up mm-hmm. um and developing those muscles around it so that um, and your core and everything so that it protects it and, and reduces that pain. Excellent. That's yeah. a great insights. Yeah. So how do people, if they, if, you know, they're hearing this and they're like, you know, I have something and I, sure. I want to come you into your just, clinic. Uh, Google, uh, my, my name, Marco Boder, M-A-R-K-O Boder, B-O-D-O-R, Boder Clinic. Call the phone number there, uh, 707-255-5454 and we'll get you in. Awesome. Love it. And, uh, I really appreciate, you know, sitting down and, having time and, and maybe we'll do a, a part two and just check come check in on the, the latest things on some of these research articles absolutely i appreciate it it's, it's a pleasure to meet you pleasure Take to care. meet you Bye-bye. too bye